Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, I have a joke. Uh, it's a really good joke, by the way. What did the fish say when he ran into the wall? What? Damn. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. You just got a joke from actor and filmmaker Joel Edgerton. That'll help break the ice. His new film, The Gift, hits theaters in a couple of weeks. Later, we'll speak with actor Abigail Spencer, star of the hugely acclaimed TV drama Rectify. Also coming up, the creators of Aqua Teen Hunger Force talk sensibly about absurdity. Brett Morgan discusses his Emmy-nominated documentary about Kurt Cobain. And comedian Ricky Lindholm tells us insane true facts about the Gilded Age. But first, let's start with small talk. This week, the news sounded like this. The nuclear deal reached with Iran last week was endorsed by the United Nations Security Council. Donald Trump at the Mexican border. After some high-profile losses in Los Angeles, the Big Apple is a big win for Uber. Now for some news you might not have heard, we're joined by Mark Garrison. He is a reporter for Marketplace. Mark, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? So, guys, new study, big study, hundreds of thousands of people from University of Illinois. The issue is birth order. You know all those things we talk about, about the middle child is this, the baby is that, the firstborn is that. That's right. Babies spoiled, the first child's the more responsible one. Yes, so they say. Pretty much all nonsense. This is one of the biggest studies they've ever done looking at the stereotypes. And so intelligence, for one example. The idea that the oldest is a little bit smarter. And they're not. Barely one IQ point, which is pretty much meaningless as far as actual life. Like, one, <laughs> what are you going to do with an extra IQ point? I don't know. I don't know. As a baby brother, I wouldn't know because I'm a little bit... <laughs> You're a little dumber. You're one point dumber. What is an IQ point worth? Is that like you can take off a childproof cap faster or something? <laughs> like... Could be. And, then, and they also looked at personality. So there's the idea that firstborns are more extroverted, a little bit more responsible. They looked at this, and it's entirely statistically insignificant. It's total nonsense, basically, according to this study. Interesting. Now, I have a question. I'm an only child. So is that, were only children even considered in this? I mean, is that even considered part of birth order? Because, <laughs> you know, as an only child, it's all about me, and I want to know. Rico, you have all the problems of every birth position. Oh, yeah, well. Rico, maybe, maybe you're both smarter and dumber and need attention <laughs> like the middle child. Well, you didn't need a study to learn that. <laughs> but when you mix all those things together, you get magic. That's what you get. <laughs> so, so again, like the, 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 these things all come together very, very nicely. All I know is that I just got a whole bunch of attention, and that's all that matters to me. All right. From you guys. That's what we're here for. There we go. Mark Garrison, thanks so much for the small talk. Thanks, guys. And now, time for cocktails all for me. Once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our semi-world-famous history lesson with booze. First, the history part. Right around this time, back in 1902, a guy named Willis Carrier drew up plans for an invention that made life more comfortable for everyone. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Willis Carrier made a lot of customers cool. It all started at the turn of the century, when Carrier, armed with a spanking new engineering degree, got a gig designing heating equipment for a company called Buffalo Forge. Maybe it was hanging around hot steam all day, but soon he got to thinking about how to make rooms cooler and drier. Now, Refrigeration systems had been around for years, but while they helped control temperature, they weren't great at controlling humidity. 
The story goes that one cold, foggy night, Carrier was standing on a train platform and got an idea. By pushing air through cold water, he could make his own fog and regulate the amount of moisture in it. He was right. In 1902, Buffalo Forge installed Carrier's new system at a printing plant. The cooler, drier air kept paper from expanding or contracting, making it easier to print on. Just a year out of grad school, Carrier had invented the first modern air conditioning. It didn't take long for air conditioning to revolutionize basically everything. Gillette reduced rust in its razor blade factories. Textile plants reduced static in their machines. And eventually, air conditioners started showing up in private homes, making it suddenly not insane to live in hot places like Arizona. Willis Carrier soon formed his own business with some other engineers. And the Carrier Corporation is still one of the biggest air conditioning outfits on Earth. In fact, it lent its name to Syracuse University's Carrier Dome Stadium, near which the company still does a lot of R&D. Despite the name, the Carrier Dome isn't air-conditioned. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve with it. I'm speaking with Dave Alderkirk. He is co-owner of Al's Wine and Whiskey Lounge in Syracuse, New York, where I understand that it's not exactly been a love affair between the townsfolk and the Carrier Corporation. Is that correct, Dave? Well, I believe it was for a lot of years. But uh, they went from the biggest manufacturing company in the central New York area, and then a lot of the jobs were sent elsewhere. As a, as a Pittsburgher, I, I've heard versions of this story in the Rust Belt for many years. But so I understand your the drink that you've come up with is perhaps a little bitter. Well, I did a play on the dark and stormy which my idea was the cold and bitter. <laughs> and in keeping with the spirit of the Carrier Corporation, who now designs things here but doesn't manufacture anything here, we've designed the drink here in Syracuse, but we've made it with things from other parts of the world that you'll have to put together somewhere else. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, so what, what is in this thing? So we'll start with two ounces of Gosling's Black Seal Rum for Bermuda. Okay. And Amaro Nonino from Italy, which lends complexity and bitterness. All right. And so far, Bermuda and Italy, both places that could use some air conditioning. Right. And now we'll add off five ounces of Gosling's ginger beer, which also from Bermuda. And uh, we'll finish with a squeeze of lime, also not grown here. And we'll flame an orange, also not grown here. Flame that over the glass. And we'll pour over crushed ice to make it extra cold. And there you have it, cold and bitter. Yes, it's bitterly, bitterly cold. I assume that this is a summertime drink. You You know, we kind of kiddingly joke about our weather here. It's 10 months of winter and two months of tough sledding. So (laughs) we can't really separate things by uh, winter and summer around here too much because there isn't enough summer. (laughs) You must admit, it never really fully made sense to base an air conditioning company in there in the first place. No, no, it it really doesn't. And Brendan, speaking of New York winters, oh, yeah. the reason for the Carrier Dome having no AC is because the architects figured it would never be warm enough during the school year to need it, apparently. Got it, got it. Not but needed. they do have little coal-burning stoves at every seat. <laughs> so. That sounds so cozy, Yeah, with little s'more sticks. It can hurt sometimes. Uh, folks, you'll find recipes for drinks of all temperatures at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which interesting people list interesting things. And today, our guests are David Willis and Matt Malero. 
Their surreal cult cartoon, Aqua Teen Hunger Force, concludes its 11th and final season on Cartoon Network this week. It's about a milkshake, a floating bag of french fries, and a wad of meat who live together and have adventures. David and Matt's list is as absurd as their show. I'm Dave Willis, I'm co-creator of Aqua Teen Hunger Force. And I'm Matt Malero, co-creator of Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Yeah, a lot of people say that our show is absurd, so we're giving you three things that we think are equally or more absurd or may have influenced some of our absurdity. Uh, number one's going to be John Lurie. And fishing with John, John, John. Fishing with John. The TV show that was hosted by this jazz musician, John Lurie, who I think he played in the Lounge Lizards, He did, right? yes. And yeah. he was in a few Jim Jarmusch movies. And... He did the soundtrack to Get Shorty. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. It was a fishing show hosted by a guy who did not apparently know how to fish. And uh, he would have celebrity friends of his on, like Tom Waits. and He would charter a whole boat and get a whole bunch of gear <laughs> and uh, pilot and captain this fishing trip. And then Tom Waits would get seasick, and then they would go back to shore and spend the entire episode playing cards with the natives. Yeah. We used to catch chicken fish back in Illinois. What's what, the chicken what, what did you can fish? They're like a puffed-up fish. He doesn't know anything about no, fishing. No, he don't know anything about fishing. Man. Well, we always call it chicken fish. Chicken. Chicken fish. This narrator would pop in and out out of nowhere with lines like, The shark reigns over his underworld kingdom. It is highest in the ocean food chain. He has no predator except man. <laughs> it's just funny. You know, absurdity is funny because it breaks the template of norm and unleashes the unexpected, which is a sort of a shock to the brain, which makes you laugh. Uh, number two would be Don Hertzfeld, who is an animator that we both really liked um, and still like. Don Hertzfeld had this one short that we really love called Rejected, and it was nominated for an Oscar. His style tends to be stick figure and very crude pencil drawings of happy-looking characters that eventually find themselves in very horrific situations. And I think the first one we saw by Don Hertzfeld was uh, Billy's balloon. The kid's got a balloon tied around his wrist and then the balloon picks the kid up, up in the air and it's sort of this magical thing and then the balloon drops the kid. <laughs> but the, what, where it starts to get funny is that the balloon comes back down, just keeps picking this kid up again and dropping him. But the boy doesn't want to believe that this magical red balloon is trying to hurt him. I think the reason why we loved that so much was that, you know, it was just out of the blue. It was unexpected. Sometimes violence is funny because people deserve it, and sometimes it's funny because they don't. <laughs> like Billy. <laughs> he didn't deserve that. So why was it funny? I don't know. Our third absurd thing has to be Steve Martin because he's so out there. One of our editors and producers, Ned Hastings, still says a line from, I think it's Let's Get Small, where he just says, one shot, goodbye. Then I figured out uh, a potential concert income. If you fill a 3,000-seat hall at $3 per ticket, the gross is uh, $9,000. Uh, if you fill a 3,000-seat hall at seven fifty per ticket, the gross is uh, $22,500. 
And just for fun, I figure out if you fill a 3,000 seat hall at $800 a ticket, <laughs> gross is $2,400,000. And uh, this is what I'm shooting for. <laughs> One show, goodbye. And sometimes when we just sort of mail something in at work or, <laughs> or something makes us laugh, that phrase just comes up, but it's always like, one take, goodbye. Absurdity just kind of just, you know, it's like there's templates. There's like normal vanilla The Simpsons, just jokes and funny. And, you know, what we do is a little bit of that, but the absurdicon element <laughs> of the ridiculum. Of the ridiculum that obviously relate to the protoplasm of the ridiculum and the, <laughs> and the proto <laughs> that's how it works the guest list from david willis and matt malero this week their hit cartoon aqua teen hunger force concludes its final season on cartoon network's adult swim 134 shows goodbye <laughs> Uh, Folks, coming up, actor Abigail Spencer, star of the acclaimed TV series Rectify, tells us about empathy and Florabama when the Dinner Party download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the arts and leisure section of public radio. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later we chat with Brett Morgan. His documentary about Kurt Cobain was just nominated for seven Emmys. Also, comedian Ricky Lindholm tells us how to keep lousy musicians from ruining your party. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week it's actor Abigail Spencer. She's best known for her roles in distinguished cable dramas like Mad Men, True Detective, and especially the acclaimed Sundance Channel series Rectify which The Atlantic magazine recently called Television's Quiet Triumph. Great show. In the show, Spencer plays the fiery Amantha, who succeeds in getting her brother Daniel released from death row, where he's been imprisoned for 19 years. In this clip, it's the day of his release. Amantha drives Daniel around their small Georgia town, where some locals still think he committed a murder. Hey, we can go to the Target in Mansfield. What's the Target? You are? Sorry. I don't know why I said that. It just came out. You're a funny sister. Oh, good. You got it. <laughs> That's kind of how I deal. Gallows humor. Exactly. Of course, you would know about that, wouldn't you? The third season of Rectify is now underway. When I met with Abigail, I asked her how she got the part. I was... On the phone with my really good friend, Andrew Leeds, who mm. is an actor and a writer and we've been friends forever. And he was telling me about the show, Sundance TV's, you know, first scripted show. And he's like, it's the best thing I've read, but they won't see me for the lawyer. And and I totally like bypassed like his actor woes. And I was like, oh, well, that that sounds really interesting. Like, is there a role Mercenary. for me You're on ruthless. the show? <laughs> and he was like, no. And I'm like, oh, there's not like a role for a woman between the ages of 25 and 35 on the show. And and he was like, well, there's the part of the sister, but you're way too pretty to play her. Aww. And I was like, I was like, well, 
I'm going to call you back. <laughs> so I literally hung up the phone, called my then agent, Craig Shapiro, and I was like, what the heck is Rectify? And he's like, it's the best script of the year. And I was like, well, why haven't you sent it to me? He's like, well, you're not really doing television right now. I'm like, well, I'm not doing bad television right now. Like, send it to me right now. And I mean, this all happened within a matter of 15 minutes. I, 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 d- yeah. I did not even sit down. I was standing in my kitchen. Craig sent me the email with the script attached, and five pages in, I was like, what is this? Mm. I went back to the front page, and I said, who is Ray McKinnon? Did we grow up together? Because it was such an authentically southern kind written, of show. Yeah. viewed southern show, and I had not come across that. I mean, I, I am— you know, from Florabama, which is technically <laughs> Southern. Uh-huh. Um, but I kind of stayed away from a lot of the Southern storytelling because I found them to be arch or judgmental mm-hmm. or caricatures. And But this this was transcendent. And then it was just I called him back and we begun the attack <laughs> yeah. on, on the producers and the casting directors and on Ray. And luckily... The feeling was mutual when I finally got to meet Ray. Ray was like, you're not too pretty for this part. Yeah. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know what Andrew is telling you. That was a clever <laughs> ploy on his part to kind of throw you off. It is. Uh, your character dedicated her life to helping someone, and now he doesn't necessarily need her anymore or at times even maybe want her involved. How did you get into that space, and how did the director prepare you? You know... I've experienced this. I mean, not in the same capacity. Like, I I have not gotten my brother off death row. Thank God. He never, you know. Yeah. Haven't had to. I haven't had to. But I have experienced extreme fervor and drive and got to get it, got to get that thing, and then given my whole self to something, and then I got it, and I felt like it didn't want me, you know? Mm. Like, it was... Mm-hmm. Um, in, in, a, in a few different areas of, of my life. So so a, a lot of Amantha is me on some level being able to explore all of those deeply personal avenues of my own life, but just in this kind of imaginary capacity. Yes. The wondrous nature of acting. You get to do yeah. therapy publicly. It really is a gift. I, I really do think that I enjoy the opportunity to become very empathic to people and circumstances and situations and souls that I would never otherwise. I mean, that really is the gift. Is It's uh, exploration and empathy. No, I'm jealous. I'm not an actor. <laughs> Do you get to talk? I think I, think I made stuff. the wrong decision. <laughs> but I'm not going to cry about it now. No, you did, you did the right thing. You did the right thing. Um, <laughs> so we have two standard questions we ask yeah. our guests. Uh, mm-hmm. And the first one is, what question should we not ask you at a dinner party? What question are you tired of being asked? I don't know if people are as that curious about me. <laughs> I don't well, know pretend. I, no. Pretend. Pretend that people were curious and they cared. What question, am I ti- <laughs> what question was I tired of reading people asking you while I was preparing for this? Oh, yeah. Mm. yeah tell me. Tell me what, uh, what question you were tired of um, reading. I, I don't think you would get tired of this, but probably people bring up Mad Men a lot. Oh. When you played Suzanne mm-hmm. Farrell, uh, a teacher that Don Draper had an affair with in season three, your popularity soared after that. Is that fair oh, to say? Oh, yeah. I mean... Well, sadly, I'm so grateful for that question because I'm amazed that it's relevant five years later. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm amazed that I got to be a part of such a literary historical moment in television and play a great, memorable character. Yeah. I mean, 
So I'm just amazed. I mean, and it still happens every room or role that I am up for. People say, you on Mad Men. That was the moment or the first time I saw you. But what's interesting is that I worked for 10 years. Yeah. I was a working actor for 10 years before Mad Men came along. So that was, um, I guess, my 10,000 hours in some <laughs> capacity. This is nice. What can I do for you? I don't know. I wanted to talk. Right. Says the man as he unbuckles his pants. What do you want me to say? You've been flirting with me for months. So what? So I can't stop thinking about you. Because I'm new and different. Or maybe I'm exactly the same. Clearly, Mad Men is singular, right? I mean, it's it's a mm-hmm. phenomena for good reason, <laughs> and because mm-hmm. it's it's excellently written, the art direction, the performances. As an actor, you know that that did kind of shift people's uh, perception of you. Did that come from like it being the right role, or is that just what great writing does? Was it just oh well, that was so well written by being in it, I was really able to show my chops, or was it also just great casting? If you and that character just meshed at that time and it worked, I think it was a few different things because I do agree with you. I feel that I am only as good as the writing. Like you never want to be the best thing in a something that's terribly written. It mm-hmm. will only bring you down. You yeah. know, you want to be the worst thing and something that's amazing because it will only bring you up. You yeah. know, I'm going to tell my girlfriend this later. Worst thing in something amazing. <laughs> That's what I'm going to go for in my relationship. Uh, so the writing was a factor. What else? Um, regarding that moment, you know, it was a few things. It was the it was the timing. People were kind of slowly catching on season one and two, but season three was the shift where Mad Men had sure. just taken over pop culture, where everyone in the cast had become very well known, and everyone was watching the show. And then two, it was the right role for the right time for the right mm-hmm. girl. I just knew her. I was like, oh, my gosh. And, you know, and she was a school teacher and she lived in the guest house of a family that she worked for. And my mother was a school teacher. And, and the character was based on the song Suzanne by Leonard Cohen. My mother sang that song to me my entire childhood. Huh. All of these things. And also, I had just had my son, who is now six, mm-hmm. and I was just happy to, like, you know, leave the house like I was just so (laughs) grateful to be there and because I didn't know you know Matt didn't say like oh well this is gonna be this and you know it was just it it unfolded you know it unfolded throughout the season sure six episodes right yeah six episodes so we have another standard request we make of our guests and it is tell us something we don't know this can either be an interesting fact about you or an interesting piece of trivia. Well, okay, an interesting piece of trivia, uh, since I'm in New York right now, was that my, after all my children, my first job that moved me to New York City, my first professional acting job. The soap opera, yeah. The soap opera. I got a job as a hostess at Josie's on 74th in Amsterdam because I loved eating there, and I just wanted a <laughs> discount on the food, so I got a job hosting there. And I and people would come into the restaurant, and I wasn't on the show anymore. And I kind of was like, I don't know what I want to do with my life. Like I was writing songs, like maybe I'll start a band. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm 21, and I you know basically like had and lost a career already. Oh, <laughs> so man. I'm just like, okay, I'm gonna be a hostess. And um, I remember people would come in, they'd be like. 
are you Becca Tyree from All My Children? I'm like, yep. What? Ta- how many will it be? <laughs> you know, just like oh, no. totally the trying to play Grace. it off. The fall from grace. I got tipped $50 one time as a hostess. I was like, is this normal? I was wow. like, this is amazing. You're like, I do better. That's better than my day rate. And Rico, something else I learned. All right. Abigail's dad was Yancey Spencer III. Okay. Was he an earl? <laughs> it's an impressive name. Well, sort of in the surfing world. In the mid-60s, he started surfing near Pensacola and right. became known as the godfather of Gulf Coast surfing. Oh. And now we watch his daughter while we channel surf. That's right. It it's so sweet. Runs in the family, kind of. Now, the main course, the part of the show where we eat tasty things and call it journalism. So, Brendan, you ever finish a salad and then you mop up the last bits of veggies and dressing with the bread? Of course, yes. Well, in Oaxaca, Mexico, they have turned that into a dish. Smart. Called piedrasos, yes. Except instead of salad and dressing, they used pickled vegetables and pickling brine. I am in. Me too. <laughs> Food writer Bill Esparza just got back from a trip to Oaxaca, and he wrote about Piedrasos for Los Angeles Magazine. So I met with him at the L.A. food stand Oaxaca, California, one of the very few places in town that serves the dish. I first asked Bill for a pronunciation lesson. Piedrasos, which means little stones. Because that's all you're, you're basically eating, little pieces of hard bread, kind of in between a hard bread and a crouton. And then you just pour vinegar on them, which is kind of an odd thing. And I've been trying so hard to say, this is a torta, right? You know, it's some kind of torta. I want to I wanna include it in my, my list of tortas, but it's, it's not. It's just a snack that you find at oddly at ice cream shops in Oaxaca. Wait, what? Yeah. They have vendors that just do this on the street as well. But it seemed to be a thing with all the ice cream shops over there. I love it. It's, it's really unique. It's, it's really a great flavor of Oaxaca that people don't talk about. People always talk about mole and, and tamales, and, but you never hear about this dish, you know? Let's talk about the actual components of the thing. So the, the first thing, obviously, is that you have to have the bread, and it has to be a hard bread. This is a, a white flour bread with a, not too thick of a crust. Is it actually made specifically in a, in a special way for this dish, or it's just any bread that you kind of dry out? Yeah, this is a kind of bread... It's only used for piedrasos. They only use this kind of bread, and it comes quartered like this. They quarter the rolls, and they sell them in bags, and you know people take them to their stands and uh, make the piedrasos. Although I can't imagine this dish maybe being born of practicality, you know, just uh, another use for hard day-old bread. Yeah, or it might just be, I was just talking to the owner, Juan, here of Oaxaca, California, and he only serves it during, like, when you have the Gelaguetza going on in July. What's that? Gelaguetza is a traditional Oaxacan celebration that's, that's all over Oaxaca. There's lots of dance and ceremony, and there's mezcal, and there's lots of throwing of, of gifts to the crowd. So I guess maybe this helps soak up all that mezcal, because it's basically just bread. I, I imagine it helps, and, and let, let's just go with that. It certainly wouldn't hurt. No, no, it wouldn't. All right, let's keep let's keep uh, going through the components of this dish. So you got the hard bread. Yes. Um, it is sitting in this case on a bed of pickled onions and carrots, which were sitting there pickling in a big jar on the front right. counter. Is that typically the vegetables that you're getting? Yeah, the vegetables are typical. Uh, you would get different variations over there. Oaxaca has lots of pickled things: pickled mangoes. You get pickled apples, uh, potatoes. They also do potatoes, and they'll cover that with the. Um, the pickling juice and you take the bread and you start you dunk it into the brine pour some of the brine on top 
and some of the vegetables, and that's it. Piedrasos. On top of all this, of course, you've also got uh, some chili powder has been sprinkled on top. I also, in your article that you mentioned cheese, I don't see cheese in this particular variation. Right. You know, Oaxacan cheese, that string cheese, ends up on a lot of dishes. So it's, it's an option. And there's places that do like a variety of piedrasos and you can get all these different combinations. Yes. And of course, we always have chili powder or chiles and everything. Just to remind us, it's a Mexican dish. Right. All right. Um, I'm going to take a bite of this thing. I mean, the thing that I love about it is that it's just so simple and straightforward. Literally, the preparation was done in front of us at the counter. A big it's, hunk of bread was just dunked deep into this barrel of pickling juice until it just, the bubbles stopped coming up and it was fully soaked with this brine. I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm going to like it because it has salt and carbs. So that's not a problem. Oh, and you're, you're handing me a fork. I, I can't just pick this up, you know, with my bare hand. Well, man, we're, we're sharing it, so. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I don't care. This is my show. You can deal with my germs. Hold on. Here we go. Isn't it great? Yeah, that's exactly what you want. It's a real blast of salt, by the way. It's very early in the morning, so my taste buds are now fully awake. Yeah. As you said, it's very simple and straightforward, yet kind of odd and intriguing. I mean, it's, it's the reason why for over, I mean, really a couple of years, I've like, I want to get this dish, you know. I'm going to take one more bite of this thing. And then I'm going to need something sweet to balance it out. I totally understand why you would serve this at an ice cream store, actually. Bill Esparza introducing me to Piedrasos at the L.A. food stand Oaxaca, California. It's in the Mercado La Paloma food court, and there's a link to it on our website. All right. And since we're talking food, we figured this be a fine time to address some food-related letters we've received from you. Uh, yes. Because if you don't open letters after a while, they get moldy. And that's just science. It everybody. is. So first one comes from Peter Schwarzer, a German living in D.C., he heard my chat last week with Chef Bernard Maringer about Austrian street food, sausages, and the like served at stands called Imbuses. Peter had this to say. I was a little disappointed to hear the Austrian proprietor describing Austrian cooking as German, just not boring. So I feel compelled to point out that the uh, curry spice sausage Brandon so much enjoyed is in fact a German invention. Legend has it that after World War II, a returning German POW told his wife about this red stuff Americans would put on everything. And because she ran one of those imbis places, she started experimenting with ketchup and curry, and thus the currywurst was born. Germans are not so boring after all. You're right, Peter. They're not. They're not. And thank you guys also for the Frankfurter. <laughs> yes. And speaking of dogs... Uh, we did a piece a few weeks back about a new law in New York, which, if approved, will allow pet dogs on restaurant patios. Now, I was skeptical of food and dogs and my allergies all mingling. Mm -hmm. Some of you said, here, here. But others, like Danielle from St. Louis, not so much. I was really surprised at the description of dogs barking or disrupting the meal. That's never been my experience. Dogs on patios are not that stressful. You know, it's a patio, not a dog park. Chill out. Clearly, there are some rabid opinions on both oh, sides. Oh, God. Yeah. And finally, <laughs> in our History Lesson with Booze segment, we told the tale of Adolf Sachs, inventor of the saxophone. Belgian-American listener Pamela Woolley had this to say. I couldn't believe you described Adolf Sachs as Parisian. Actually, Adolf Sachs comes from Dinan in Belgium. Belgium is often overlooked. Things that are Belgian are often misattributed to the French. 
And whilst the French are lovely, that's just not fair. Well, actually, Pamela, we have Wait, to... Wait, before you say anything, a few minutes later, we got another message. Pamela again. And I have to say, oops, Adolf Sax did invent the saxophone in Paris. So although he's Belgian, I suppose you're correct in saying that a Parisian invented the saxophone. But he was Belgian, and Belgium is proud of him. I'm sure you are. And Pamela, thank you for doing our work for us. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's our first ever correction to a correction. Yeah, I think I'm falling into a wormhole. Oh, no. uh, people, if you have something to say or unsay, try the new DPD hotline. It's 929-335-DNLD. Dogs welcome. We'll be back in a minute with comedian Ricky Lindholm. This is the Dinner Party Download. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, culture, food, and humor to fuel your party conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll speak with Emmy-nominated director Brett Morgan about his Kurt Cobain documentary. But first, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Yes, each week you send in your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this week is actor and comedian Ricky Lindholm. She is one half of the comedy music duo Garfunkel and Oates. I believe she is Garfunkel. Yes. All right. <laughs> Their much-missed sitcom concluded last year on IFC. Now, along with comedian Natasha Liguero, Ricky's co-created and stars in the series Another Period, which just launched on Comedy Central. It is a send-up of historical dramas like Downton Abbey, crossed with the the reality TV elements of the Kardashians. Mm. Did you write that, Rico? That's pretty well put. I might have pulled that off a PR blast. (laughs) Okay. Set in 1902 Rhode Island, Ricky plays the dumbest of the wealthy, spoiled Bellacourt sisters. In this clip, they show up at a meeting of suffragists and protest against a woman's right to vote. Ricky (laughs) is playing the fife. I have a dream. A dream where women will never be allowed to vote, own property, or handle money. I have a dream that women will stay as they currently are. We are in the golden age of women not having to do anything. Let's keep it that way. Yeah, women shouldn't have voices! Raise your hand if you don't want to vote! No votes for women! 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 Oh, we're all saying the same thing. No votes for women. No, I have a period between no and votes for women. That's disgusting. All right. Ricky, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) We had to play the whole thing. It's just an amazing scene. Thank you. It was fun. You end up stabbing a suffragist at the end of that scene. I do. Spoiler alert, I might be in a band with her. Mm -mm -mm. (laughs) That's Oates getting shivved in the eye. So how how did you land on this particular period of history as the the basis of your parody? Well, one, it was the first year that uh, motion picture cameras were really happening. So I guess it technically could have happened in 1900. And the other thing, it's sort of this golden age where there was no income tax in America and no antitrust laws. So people were billionaires with a B, not adjusting for time period. They had so, (laughs) and they were brand new. They were like a fur trapper who was suddenly a billionaire. And I was like, well, that's funny to me. It is. I mean, it's maybe not a coincidence that you're doing a piece about the Gilded Age in a time of income disparity. Because people have figured out how to not pay taxes now mm. and how to not have trust laws now. You know, it's it's all the same. We're not saying that it's a political show, but there might be some underpinnings. There's definitely, I mean, it's the stupidest political show you'll ever see. <laughs> it's just so yeah. dumb in the best way. 
But it's, you know, we try to get it in there, try to get some politics. Well, I, w- I would argue that it's not entirely dumb. I mean, your character, Beatrice, is the resident airhead. Yes. Uh, your sister, Lillian, is ruthless. And then your third sister, Hortense, is actually pretty normal. She's the only smart one, and we think she's, like, shouldn't even be alive. <laughs> she's barren, so we're like, well, why are you still here? <laughs> What point do you have? When do you die? That's yeah. She has no point in our minds. You give her constant flack, yes, for and and, and you give her flack for wanting things like, as we just heard, the right to vote. Can you talk about her, writing her character and the role she plays in this whole satirical universe? She's the voice of reason, who we just all think is absolutely ridiculous. We think she's just mm. um, so beneath us because we're married and we have eight kids. Therefore, we're superior beings. And she's this sad woman who reads. In a way, in a way she's the modern woman yes, transported exactly. back in time. But back then, they thought if a woman read at a college level, it would shrink her ovaries. Is, it, is that true? That's real. What? Ev- almost everything in our show is real. Some people criticize stuff but we're like, no, that's fact. There were anti-suffragist rallies. There were um, Freud did diagnose people as homosexual. In last night's episode, that happened. Yeah. People were appointed senator. You didn't vote for it back then. All that stuff is just real. Before we started taping, you mentioned that there was like a beauty pageant. Yeah, beauty pageants used to just be cabbages and birds. And then they're like, let's put women in there. And there was a beauty pageant in Rhode Island with women, babies, and cabbages. And so we're like, well, we don't have to make that up. People are like, that's so dehumanizing. And we're like, that's real. Wow. So you, you and Natasha are like the Ken Burns of the Comedy <laughs> yeah. Central set. Yeah, exactly. Okay. <laughs> Perfect. So... You've spent a while living in Bellacourt Manor to shoot this show, yes. and uh, it's a place where they have 17 forks for each plate. <laughs> Are you ready to answer these etiquette sure. questions we have for you? I'll try. All right. There's uh, one from Brian in Rutherford, New Jersey. Brian writes, at parties at my apartment, friends or sometimes strangers will pick up my guitar or ukulele or sit down at my piano and play. 90% of the time, they don't know how to play. It is not enjoyable and extremely distracting for me and I bet everyone else. What is the best way to politely ask them to stop? Okay, I have this happen all the time because I have a lot of instruments. Of course. I think the best way, people want music to be a communal experience. So if you just mm-hmm. look at your phone, they will stop within like two songs. Do you know what I mean? If you just ignore it, if you pretend <laughs> it's not happening, if you continue your conversation, mm-hmm. yeah. they'll just stop. Starve the room of that campfire feeling. Y- yes, exactly. Who's going to play for half an hour with no one looking at them? Nobody. <laughs> They'll stop. All right. See, who says there's no place for cell phones at a party? There are good things. There you go, Brian. Our next question comes from Patricia in Chicago. Patricia writes, most of my friends have fallen off the Downton Abbey bandwagon. I am still firmly on this bandwagon. Is it okay for my friends to bash the show in my presence? Oh. Wow, you are really <laughs> sensitive. I mean, do you guys, like, can you talk about politics or something? Like, how how sensitive are you that they can't not like a show that you like? Yeah. I feel like it would be really hard to be friends with you. <laughs> I mean, don't you think, like, if you can't bash a show in their presence? Yes. Like, that's pretty. No, you know, you like to have a little bit of give and take, thrust and parry during a dinner party. And it seems like, yeah, television should be safe ground for that. Yeah. It's like a fun, easy thing to banter about so you don't have to talk about real things. Like, you should be lucky they're not talking about Obamacare. That's exactly right. It does. But I will say, though, Downton Abbey is one of those shows that it's like your family that they're making fun of. I mean, I guess. In our writing staff for another period, we were kind of split down the middle. Half the people loved it and half the people hated it. And it worked for us because we'd be like, what do you hate the most? And they're like, oh, when they do this. And then we're like, oh, that's funny. We'll take that. Which side do you fall on? I'm on the love side. Yeah, I could kind of tell. you. On one hand, you're obviously bashing the Gilded Age. Yes. But on the other hand, you like you like hanging out in that mansion. Yeah, it's really fun. I like the <laughs> costumes. Yeah. You like sucking the cream out of cream puffs and throwing them at people. Yeah, cream time. <laughs> There's a scene where your favorite pastime is to throw empty cream puffs at servants. <laughs> cream time. Uh, all right, here's something from Ray, spelled R-E-I, in Copley, Pennsylvania. And Ray writes... 
I am a Lolita. Lolita is a type of fashion imported from Japan or a person who wears it. We were afraid to Google search that, so yes. we're just going to take her word for it. Yes.、Uh, I frequently get together with other Lolitas in public for picnics or shopping. People often ask to take our pictures or have us pose with them or their kids, which we don't mind at all, but we often see people taking pictures of us without permission. How do we let these people know their behavior is wrong?、Um, can I call the bull? Meter on this one. You can, like, and we can bleep that out. <laughs>、yeah. I've seen the Lolita way of dressing, and it which is, is what, by the way, it's basically you're kind of dressing like an anime doll. Halfway between anime and an American girl doll, you have like anime makeup and like a bright pink wig with pigtails, and then like a ballet costume and in in seven inch boots. And, so it's subtle. Yeah, it's subtle. <laughs> you look like a cartoon character, and if a group of them getting together, not wanting to be photographed. I don't buy it. I don't.、Oh. I'm sorry. I don't buy it. Well, they expect to be photographed. They just expect you to ask their permission, though. Right. We don't live in that world anymore. This isn't the '80s.、Mm. We don't. Everybody takes pictures of everything all the time, and you can't expect、yeah. to be exempt from that. Yeah. Ever really. All right. Well, Ricky, where do we draw the line? Because you're becoming increasingly popular.、Uh, people probably take pictures of you. Is that acceptable? Yeah. <laughs> Great, Rico. Take I mean, a picture. Yeah, I mean, I, like you can't take、it. a picture of me in the shower at the gym, but like, you know, if you're out in、know. public, particularly perhaps if you're making a spectacular.、Right. Yes, if you're seven Lolitas in a park, I think you just need to get past it、you、and guys, just realize that's the society we're living in. Expect it, you guys. All right. Okay. Here's the, our last question. This is a question we ask everyone who does this segment of the show. What is the most memorable get together you've ever been to? Who, what, where? Details, please. So the director of Another Period, Jeremy Connor, he got married last summer, two summers ago, something like that. But so he had, you know, a standard, you know, pretty ceremony, and then the after party got crazy, and everyone, including the bride and groom, ended up in the pool. Just in their, in, in their clothes. It was hundreds of people in formal wear in a pool, and people were just like pouring tequila in your mouth from the bottle.、And、it sounds it was, pretty gilded age. It was so gilded、yeah. age. <laughs> I was in a hot tub at one point in my dress with fifteen or sixteen other people, just like taking shots of whatever. And all the kids at that local YMCA were like, "What is going on with these people? <laughs> wow, how come they're in our pool wearing dresses? This is wrong, mommy." It yeah, was, it was kind of a weird night for everyone. Where a lot of people kind of stopped drinking for a while, like. It was just a lot. <laughs> well, if your show's about anything, it is the evils of decadence.、Uh, Ricky Lindholm, thank you for telling our audience how to behave and how not to. Thank you for having me. Ricky Lindholm, she is the co-creator and co-star of Another Period. You should watch it Tuesday nights, ten thirty on Comedy Central. If only to see Helen Keller get drunk on cocaine wine. It's a spectacle. It is. And if you have a behavior question pertaining to manners of the present or the past,、mm. send it to us. We're at dinnerpartydownload.org. Last week, director Brett Morgan earned seven Emmy nominations for his documentary about Kurt Cobain. It's called Montage of Heck, and the title comes from an audio montage Cobain made in the late '80s before his band Nirvana became one of the biggest acts in the world. Frances Bean Cobain, Kurt's daughter, who executive produced the film, gave Morgan full access to her father's notebooks, home recordings, videos, and drawings, and Morgan uses it all to let Kurt tell his own story. The result is what Rolling Stone calls the most intimate rock doc ever. I spoke with Morgan a couple of months ago when the film debuted on HBO, and he started by telling me about Kurt's youth in the small logging town of Aberdeen, Washington, circa 1967. I think that Kurt had a very idyllic first couple years in this world. 
the firstborn of uh, a very large extended family with several uncles and aunts who would all fight over him. He was absolutely adorable. And I think that's a part of this story, too, is how attractive he was as a child. So people are fawning over him. But then he went from being the golden child uh, to becoming a hot potato once he was diagnosed as hyperactive. Uh, and then his parents divorced, being passed between his parents, Wendy Cobain and Donald Cobain, and his grandparents and his neighbors. No, yeah, one... no one no one, wanted him, man. I mean, look, Wendy says that, uh, you know, Wendy views it totally differently. In her mind, she never rejected Kurt. You know, he, he would come over for lunch and that her door was always open. And I was like, well, Wendy, the person saying this in the movie is Kurt. Whether he didn't have a place to stay for one day or one year, it really doesn't matter. He experienced that as a form of rejection and abandonment. Yeah. So the first part of your documentary looks primarily at his childhood, and the second part, his development as a musician. And then Nirvana's album, Nevermind, comes out, becomes a huge success, and we watch Kurt trying to cope with the pressures of being a celebrity as well as struggling with heroin addiction. Now, you have lots of home videos from that time. How did it feel to kind of dig into day in, day out of his life at this point? Because even watching them made me feel a little sick to my stomach because it was so sad. Uh, yeah, it's weird that you looped them all together, though, and said that you got sick by them because I'm like that Kurt and Courtney stuff before Francis is born, I find hilarious with an uh, undercurrent of darkness that I don't think the audience really registers. The undercurrent of darkness is they're constantly talking about the media mocking their image in the media or the way other people perceive them. And that, to me, was really disturbing. But on the surface of it, it's Lucy and Ricky, and it's really <laughs> funny. This is our house. This is where we live. I know it looks disgusting now, but sometimes it's nice. I mean, after when I clean it, because no one else does. And this is the toilet. This is hey. me. Hello? Do we have a turkey baster? <laughs> what? Like, it's laugh out loud funny. And, you know, we were at South by Southwest. I couldn't hear the dialogue because people were laughing yeah. so loud. Well, I, I think I just locked into the underlying darkness part and, and the desperation of addiction. Well, their, they were... Their apartment is like this dingy mess. Their bodies look so unhealthy. Yeah, but, you know, a lot of that stuff, you know, the, the bathroom scene, he wasn't... They were sober. And I know that for a fact because mm -hmm. I know where that tape began. I mean, the later stuff for sure. Yeah, that stuff is so disturbing, man. It's so yeah. ugly and it's brutal and you don't want to see it. And I hate that it's there, but it serves a very valuable purpose. You know, I felt that they were earned, that they would come at the end of the film. And it is in that moment that you actually are looking at Kurt completely doped up. Yeah, holding his baby. Yeah, and that's the thing is it's just not showing a junkie. It's showing a father. Yeah. And what's so tragic is you see what a good father he is. I mean, that's the thing that just breaks my heart is like, and, you know, it breaks my heart for Francis because I feel she was deprived of a wonderful father. You know, I think Kurt mm -hmm. had, you know, some men don't take to newborns, but not Kurt. One time I asked Courtney, you know, she thought Kurt was a good dad, and she said, for, you know, for a junkie, I, you know. I, I want to ask you about Courtney's involvement uh, in this film. She gave you several interviews, unfettered access, but she's a pretty divisive figure among Nirvana fans, Cobain fans. Uh, in your movie, she even reads a letter from a fan accusing her of ruining him. Going into this project, what were your thoughts? How did you decide you were going to deal with the friction that kind of always surrounds her? Now, the thing with Courtney 
is there's the media perception of Courtney, and then there's Kurt's perception of Courtney. And what mattered to me was Kurt's perception of Courtney. The, one of the big challenges was how do I get the audience to liberate themselves from the media representations of Courtney and allow themselves op- to be open enough to experience her through Kurt's eyes. Yeah. Um, and I won't, I will say that wasn't incredibly that challenging because you look at the footage and there's a lot of love and I, you know, the footage that we have in that film of Kurt and Courtney goes from their first early, early meetings in October 91. Yeah. And then um, we pick it up in February 92. And certainly there's no question that they're completely compatible And then, you know, the last time we see them, it's um, Christmas 93. And in that moment, Courtney says, you know, with pure, genuine look in her eye, you know, I'm really happy. And Kurt says, you know, me too. And it's totally pure, man. It is kind of a touching moment. And yet it's the last time we see them. And not long after that, Kurt kills himself. And your movie ends kind of abruptly with, with a black screen. And then you tell us the date he killed himself. Did you choose to stop there because Kurt was no longer creating anything and since his output was the centerpiece of the film, it didn't make sense to yeah, keep going? Or... That's a good, that's true, man. There's some truth to that. But really, there's no way to neatly end this movie. You know, mm. he died. He's not here anymore. Yeah. And I wasn't going to wrap it up in a bow and, and mm-hmm. cut to a bunch of people, you know, around with flowers and uh, some, some funeral. Or His legacy lives on through all these people all over the world. That wouldn't be honest. That'd be disingenuous. That'd be like a Hollywood ending. Death is sudden, suicide is sudden, and there's no catharsis. When I, when I showed the film to Francis the first time, she said, you know what my favorite part was? I said, what was that? And she said, the end, you know, when he cuts the black. And first, I had a sort of knee-jerk reaction, like, wait a second, is she telling me her favorite part of this film? I just, like, worked my ass off on this film, and her favorite part of the movie is the black leader. But um, I knew what she meant. Brett Morgan, his documentary, Kurt Cobain, Montage of Heck, was just nominated for seven Emmy Awards. You can find it airing on HBO, or you can wait until August 7th when it returns to movie theaters for a second theatrical run. And that's the Dinner Party download for this week, folks. Tune in next week when our guests include actor Jason Segel talking about portraying another tragic figure, the late David Foster Wallace. Mm -hmm. Till then, we'd like you to know Jackson Musker produces the show. Our associate producer is Nina Patak. Christina Lopez is our associate digital producer, and you can see what she does by following us on Twitter and Instagram, where our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Engineering assistance this week came from Daniel Ramirez. Our executive producer is Peter Clowney. And if you're going away on vacation, be sure to go to iTunes and download some back episodes of our show so we can tag along with you. And while you're there, leave a comment. Especially if it's nice. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Bon appetit. Bon appetit.